let me now invite you to return to Acts chapter 3. And we might look at uh, the chapter in totality tonight, rather than isolating a section or a verse for our meditation. So Acts chapter 3 will be our text, and the title I'd like to give to the meditation is Jesus the Healer. Jesus the Healer. We have been working our way through the book of Acts. We spent some time on chapter 2. And last Lord's Day evening we came to the end of that section in Acts chapter 2 where we looked at the life of the primitive New Testament church. And it would not be wrong for us that if we wanted to gauge our congregational life or indeed our personal Christian life to compare it with the primitive Christians right back at the beginning of the Christian church. We would be wise if we would take our Christianity from the Bible. We don't take it from the church because the church can err and many churches have erred and many churches are erring today and we must not compare ourselves with others instead if we're serious about our Christian walk and experience we are to go to the Word of God and we are to go and to see how our own congregational life or our own private Christian life compares with the life of the early Christian church. Last week we would notice one or two things about that early church. It was a learning church. It was a church who devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. In other words, in clear language for all of us, they loved to hear the word of God proclaimed. And they loved to be under the sound of the gospel and to hear what the apostles had to say to them. And therefore, they were ones who loved to learn, that they might grow up. They were ones who would be used to having milk for their doctrine. But they wanted that period in their, ex in their experience when they would be ones who would be able to consume strong meat. And the Bible talks about the difference in the book of Hebrews. He talks there about believers who are only on milk, while other believers are on strong meat. And the only way that we can get to strong meat is if we have a love for the Word of God and for the teaching that is contained in God's Word. They were a loving church too. They loved to fellowship one with another. They loved to be in each other's company. And that's not surprising, for true-hearted Christians should love one another. This is something that marks out the Christian. What does Jesus say? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one towards another. And it's only obvious, surely, if we have been chosen by the God the Father, we have the same Father, we have the same Saviour, Jesus Christ, who loves his church and who gave himself for his church, 
And we have the same Holy Spirit who has applied the work of Christ to us. We have the true Christian, that is, has been regenerated by a wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the experience of every Christian. It doesn't matter our sex. It doesn't matter the language we speak or the color of our skin. It doesn't matter what we see. If we're in Christ, all of these things are common to every single one of us. And that should show itself in loving fellowship one with another. They were a worshipping church. They loved to come to prayer and to the breaking of bread. Now that might mean the communion service, or it might not. There's a debate about it. But nevertheless, they loved to come to the house of prayer. They made prayer a priority. They recognized their own weaknesses. Here they were as looked upon as a new sect. And Judaism was all around them. And Judaism dominated the scene at Jerusalem. And here were 120 believers, soon to be added to up to 3,000. But nevertheless, they were still in a minority. And they knew how powerless they were in of themselves. But they had a great God. Their God is omnipotent. And as one would say, one person with God is in the majority. And that was their view. This, this was their mentality. They were commissioned to evangelize the world as they knew it. They couldn't do it in of themselves. Impossible for them. But with God's help, with the outpouring of the Spirit, they could do it. And therefore they cried out to God and they devoted themselves to prayer and to calling out upon the Lord Jesus that he might look upon his infant church and that he might bless them. Therefore, they were a worshipping church. And they were, as a result, an evangelistic church. What does it say? Verse 47 of the last chapter. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Oh, what a position to be in. Oh, is, would it not be wonderful to see people added to this congregation daily such as should be saved? Well, that's what it was like. For the early Christian church, they kept coming in. They couldn't be stopped. Why? Because the Lord was adding to them such as should be saved. Now, we're not to think for one moment that there was no effort on their behalf. That is, that there was no effort on behalf of the Christians. They didn't just sit back and say, the Lord will do it. They took opportunities. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Well, we want to move on to chapter 3. And we want to look at this miracle here. And there are three brief things that I wish to highlight with you this evening. Three headings that we can easily draw from this chapter for our edification. And we look for the Lord to lead and guide in our exposition of this First of all, then briefly, let us notice there are a number of firsts in this chapter. And I put it to you, what we have here is the first recorded miracle. The first recorded miracle. 
Now, I have been accurate here in the sense that it was not the first miracle that was performed by the apostles. It was not. The previous chapter, verse 43, tells us, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Many signs, many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. What we have here is simply the first recorded miracle. And we're going to say performed by Peter. But we know, of course, as Peter goes on to say, it's really got nothing to do with me. Nothing whatsoever. What has happened is not because of my power or because of my holiness or indeed of John's power or John's holiness. No, nothing whatsoever to do with them. This has been performed in the name and in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have here, friends, is the first one, the first miracle that has been recorded for us in the Word of God. Why has it been recorded? Well, it has been recorded that we might recognize that in one real sense, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ continues. We went through Luke's Gospel, and we noticed there in Luke's Gospel there were many miracles, and we dwelt upon them. And by the miracles, Jesus was demonstrating that he was the Messiah. And he was giving evidence by the signs and wonders, look, he has come from heaven. He has come with the full authority of heaven. He is a sent messenger. He has come with a mission. He comes with divine approval. And the, med and the miracles merely attest to his credentials. And the, the signs and the wonders that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry demonstrated and attested him to be the God-appointed Savior for mankind. But now that he is in heaven, now that he has suffered and died, now that he had been put in the tomb but rose, and now that he's ascended up into heaven, where he sits at God's right hand, he is still at work. He is still performing miracles. Oh, he's not there physically. People cannot run up to him and go before him and cry out, have mercy upon me, open my eyes or unstop my ears or loosen my tongue. He, that doesn't happen in the New Testament. In the New Testament age after Jesus Christ was risen and exalted and glorified. No, instead this happens through his disciples by the power and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this again would reinforce to us and to them and to, the, uh, to Luke's original readers that they are to understand that the work of Christ is ongoing. In one real sense, he sits down, as we noticed uh, on Wednesday evening. He sits down in heaven. But his work goes on. And here we find a glorious work. 
this miracle. And it's recorded therefore for us that we might, as I'm speaking mostly to Christians, that we would continue to have our faith rooted and grounded upon the Saviour. That we would realize that no matter what is happening in the world, no matter the low state of the Christian church, don't think for one moment that Jesus is not working. Don't think for one moment that anything is amiss. Things might not be the way that we would like. But his enemies shall still be made his footstool. He shall still be victorious. And therefore, Christian, do not falter, do not waver, do not despair. Jesus Christ is omnipotent, all-conquering, all-glorious, and he is ongoing, working. And maybe there may well be an unbeliever here. And you see the state of the church, you see the state of the world, and you really wonder, well, is all this that the preachers talk about Jesus and about his kingdom and about his glory and about his majesty, is all of it really true? Of course it is. And he is worthy of your trust. You are to call upon him. You are to look up with the eye of faith. You are to look past these present difficulties and, and circumstances that we see around us. You are to see one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he is still working miracles today. Oh, we're not saying for one moment that cripples are healed like this individual was here. Although it would not be impossible. But we still see conversions. We still see people brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we re recognize that, surely that is a miracle. Surely that is a wonderful miracle when we see someone rescued from this present evil world and being translated from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Is that not a miracle? Is that not a wonder? When you see the opposition of the world, and when you see how difficult it is to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not a wonder that the grace of God is able to save the chief of sinners? And do we not know it to our own experience? Have we not known this? Of course we do. Anyone who is truly a Christian can look at their rebirth, can look at their conversion, and although they might not be happy at the progress they've made in the Christian life, yet they can say, I'm not what I once was. I may not be what I would like to be. And I'm certainly not what I will be. But I can testify that I'm not what I once was. Was there not a time, Christian, when you wouldn't be found in the house of God? You might be anywhere else on an evening of the Lord's day. But God, by his grace, has done wonderful things. Well, 
The first recorded miracle reminds us that Christ has not lost his ancient power. Secondly, and we want to really look at the miracle at this time, but it's under the heading, First Time Walking. First Time Walking. What a day it was for this poor man. We'll see it next week, God willing, but chapter 4 tells us that this man was over 40 years old. He'd never walked in his life. Never. Can you imagine that? Here we are tonight, every one of us we walk. Every one of us. Some may well need a stick, but once upon a time you didn't need a stick. And you may have run a hundred meters, no problem. And you knew what it was to, to crawl first, and then to walk, and then to run. And you knew that you were not a burden to anyone. Well, this poor man, when he got up on this day, he was a burden. He was a burden to himself, and he's a burden to everyone else. He had to be carried to this place, to just beside the temple, to the beautiful gate. And apparently it was a gate that was made of bronze. And it truly was beautiful to look at because when the sun did shine upon it, it looked like gold. And many cripples were there. Many people who needed to beg were there. They were placed there or they put themselves there. This poor man couldn't even put himself there. He had to be carried. And daily he was carried. And he went there hoping to get some money. Because he couldn't work. And there was no social security. There was no help from the government. He depended upon charity, this poor individual. And he encounters Peter and John. They were about to go into the temple. It was the, third, uh, the ninth hour of the day, which would be around three o'clock in the afternoon, the time when the evening sacrifice would be offered up. And Peter and John, who were Jews, were still uh, observing Judaism. And let us remember, the book of Acts goes from Christianity to it goes from Judaism to Christianity. There was a transition, and during that transitional period. Many of the disciples and many of the apostles continued in the life of Judaism until it became clear to them that they had to depart from it. But that's what it would be. You'd understand there was a, a period of transition when things would become more and more clearer to them. But here they went. They went to the temple. They went to pray. They went to the time of the evening sacrifice. And they encountered this poor man. And Peter, he must have been prompted by the Holy Spirit because, as we've said, there would be other cripples and other beggars there also demanding his attention. But Peter must have been prompted by the Holy Spirit because in verse 4, Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. Look on us. The man was delighted. Someone took notice of him. Someone spoke to him. This man, if you like, had pound signs in his eyes. Oh, they're going to give me something. I'm going to get some money. I'm going to get some food tonight. I'm not going to be hungry tonight. And maybe the money they'll give me will do for a day or two. That's what he thought. But as someone said, this man needed salvation for his soul. 
and healing for his body and money could provide neither. And we have that wonderful words of, the, of Peter. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Can you imagine what it must have been like for this individual to hear these words? It would have been a great sense of discouragement to him. I'm not going to get money. I thought I was. Here are, he might think, religious nutcases. Silver and gold have I none. Why are you bothering with me? I need money. But Peter had no money. John had no money. The church had no money. But what they did have, they gave to him. Jesus Christ. I wonder if we're true with ourselves. Is it the case today that the church has money? But it doesn't have Jesus Christ. In one real sense we don't have the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something that the early primitive Christian church did have. They had no worldly possessions. They had no buildings. They had no manses. Nothing like that whatsoever. Oh, but they had what was indispensable. They had the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter was able to give this to this man. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now that's important. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. As we've noticed, Nazareth was a place that the Jews would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a terrible place. And when it's used of Jesus Christ, it's usually used in a derogatory sense. Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And Peter was basically telling them, Yes, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that you crucified, the one that you rejected, the one that you handed over, and the one that Pilate wanted to spare, but you wanted to crucify him, and you, you accepted a murderer in his place. That Jesus of Nazareth, in his name, he says, rise up and walk. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the others there, round about? What's going on here? Rise up and walk. This man has never walked in his life. And Peter took him by the right hand and lifted it up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. What a transformation. This man was transformed. He was a new man. And he went about walking and dancing. And the text tells us quite clearly that he was truly, wonderfully changed. It emphasizes the word walking and dancing. 
it emphasizes these things. And is there not a double miracle here? What do you mean? This man never walked in his life. Never. Now we know that when children come into this world, they cannot walk. And what do they do? They roll about on the floor. They get some strength. They begin to crawl. Then they try to walk and they stumble and fall. Hold on to things for some time before they, they get on their feet. He never went through any of that process whatsoever. The moment he was transformed, the moment that he was changed, he began to walk and leap. Truly there was a second miracle. He didn't have to learn to walk. The Lord Jesus Christ does nothing by half measures. Well, this was the first time for him. And he was going to make a good thing of it. Absolutely transformed and changed. What can we learn then from this miracle, this man? Well, this man is a typical man in the sense that he was a natural man. And there are spiritual lessons that we can learn when we look at this individual here. He was born lame. It's not that he walked for a period and maybe as a result of an accident or some kind of illness that came upon him that he lost the use of his limbs. No, he was born lame. The natural man what does that mean? Well, the natural man is the man as he's come out of the womb, or the woman as he's come out, as she's come out of the womb. That's the natural man. Well, the natural man is spiritually lame. The natural man can do nothing to help himself. The natural man can do nothing in any sense to approve himself before God. He is powerless. Because of sin, sin has affected him so that he doesn't walk in the ways of God. And this man is a graphic picture of what we're all like by nature. This man was a beggar. He was poor. He would have been really poor. He would have been living from day to day. There would have been days when he would have been hungry. He would have gone to bed at night. He would have been hungry. He knew what it was to be really poor. Well, the natural man, because of sin, he is poor. He has nothing to recommend himself to God. God cannot look upon him. God cannot receive him because of his poverty. The natural man may have everything that this world can give him. He can be rich in goods. He can be rich in this world's goods. But as far as God is concerned, he has no treasures. He is poor. Nothing whatsoever that can recommend himself to God. As we have stated earlier, this man was a burden. He must have felt it. He was a man. He would have had some pride in himself. But he had to rely upon others. And what a burden it is to rely upon others. 
continually for over 40 years. You can do nothing for yourself, meaningless, meaningful. He was a real burden. It reminds us that the natural man has a burden. What's that burden, sir? What is it? That burden is the sin that he carries with him. John Bunyan would talk about this burden. A burden on his back. A burden that he carries with him continually. What is that burden, sir? It's our sin. It brings us down. And the more that we go on through this life, the heavier that burden gets. Unless we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless we go to the cross. Unless we cast ourselves at the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who alone can take away this burden. This man here. He was outside the temple. He was outside. All of us, by nature, we're all sinners. We're all separated from God. In that temple there, in a very unique way, the presence of God was symbolized. Yes, we know God is omnipresent. But he promised to graciously present himself and presence himself in the temple that was built for his honour and glory. This poor man, for all the days of his life, was outside. He was separate from God. So was the natural man. But when he encountered Peter and John, and this man received life in his legs. His life was transformed. Absolutely transformed. And this would bring me to the third and final heading. And I've called this heading, First Time in a Prayer Meeting. First Time in a Prayer Meeting. I may have taken a bit of license with the title, but what I want to say is true. If you would ever consult the book of Leviticus in chapter 21, it talks about who can approach God. And in that section that we're going to consider briefly, in that section, God is outlining people who cannot come, who cannot come into the presence of God. And God was impressing upon them that he's holy and he's to be served with reverence and godly fear. And there were certain individuals who could not fully function in the service of God and they could not be found in all the precincts of the temple. And in Leviticus chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, this is what it says. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, 
He shall not approach a blind man, or a lame, or he that hath a flat nose, or anything superfluous, or a man that is broken-footed, or broken-handed. Now God is not against the disabled. But by this he was reminding the people that he's a holy, holy God. And because of this, this man who was lame from birth could not participate in all that went on in the temple. But what happened after he was cured and healed? What happened? We are told he was walking. We told, we're told he was leaping. We're told that he went in with Peter and John into the place of worship. There he was. He was liberated. And now he was found in the house of God under the means of grace. And he was a great testimony to the grace of God and to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he do? Does he run home? Does he try to get a job? Does he go and gather his friends and have a party? He had every opportunity and every excuse, but no, he's found in the temple. And as we shall see in chapter 4, he is there standing with Peter and John. As someone said very adequately, now that he could stand... There was no question where he stood. Let me repeat that. Now that he could stand, there was no question where he stood. He was a new man. There would be time to meet his family if he had family. There would be time to meet with his friends. There would be time to look for a job. There would be time to get down to normal life. But now, after being wonderfully transformed and changed and given his life back, this man was in the house of God. And this man was publicly worshipping the great God of heaven. And he was acknowledging the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was found in what I've said to be a prayer meeting. He was willing to be identified and associated with the apostles and with the cause of Christ. And this is surely, this is surely to be expected of anyone who has any interest in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be found with the people of God. Would you not think that is just obvious? Should not a person who has his sins forgiven be found giving thanks to a great God for his wonderful grace and for his mercy and for his glorious love that he has lavished upon a sinner who deserves nothing but the wrath of God? Is this not a great sense of thanksgiving? Of course it is. And this poor man who never walked for over 40 years was found in the temple. Why? Because he was healed by Jesus the healer.
And it was all done in the name that's above every name. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, friends, do we know anything of this? I'm not talking about can we walk, have we been healed, but have we been saved? Do we know this great transformation? Do we know this new life that Jesus Christ alone brings? We are to know it. And if we know it, it's to be manifested in a new life, in a life that's devoted to him and to him only. Amen. And may God be pleased to bless his word to us. Let us pray together.